Gospels, chapter 9. It's where we're going to be studying from today, and uh, uh, we're continuing a, a, a section of Scripture, uh, a study of Scripture uh, about Jesus the King, and uh, we're talking about the kingdom of uh, Jesus Christ, and we're talking about uh, what it will be like to live and actively be involved in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Of course, that's in eternity, but as well right now. And this morning, uh, the title of the message is uh, Prayer and Fasting, the Language of the Kingdom. Prayer and Fasting, the Language of the Kingdom. While you're getting settled in, I hope you have a note section. Uh, take notes this morning. Put a uh, bookmarker in Mark chapter 9. You're going to need it. We're going to go away from there a few times and come back. So make sure you have a bookmarker uh, there, uh, and that will help you tremendously. Let me throw at you two or three things that are happening uh, right around the corner uh, as, uh, for us here as a church. Number one, Thanksgiving is coming really soon. Uh, isn't it hard to believe that? But Thanksgiving is coming really, really soon. And every year at Thanksgiving, uh, we attempt to bless people in our church family and our uh, people that our church family knows uh, for Thanksgiving because there are people that do not have the funds to be able to uh, have a Thanksgiving meal. And so we always uh, step up to the plate and do that and ask you to do that. And uh, so what we're asking simply this for you. Uh, for today, if you know of families, if you know of families that would uh, be blessed uh, and, and just don't have the financial means to, uh, to, to be able to have a good solid Thanksgiving meal, we need their names. And the way you can do that is you can contact the church office, uh, either by email, uh, office at chesterchristian.org, or you can call the church office and give us a name. Uh, and you can find that information on the program, and we just need those. And so uh, this week, please give us those names. Next week, you're going to find out how you can step up to the plate and help with that. Uh, Halloween time is, is coming up on the last Friday of the month, and that's also, also our uh, uh, family movie night. And uh, as I mentioned to you last week, we're going to have a trunk or treat night that night, 7 o'clock, I'm sorry, 6 o'clock, is the time for that. Movie starts at 7. And what we need you to do is this. We need you to decorate your trunks, all right, uh, of your car. Not this trunk, of your car, uh, and put candy or treats in it. Come out, just be in the parking lot. Kids are going to show up for movie night, and you're going to have the opportunity to bless them, okay? So that will be fun if you help us out on that. Trunk or tree, uh, that's the last Friday night of the month. And then finally, just wanted to uh, remind you of small groups. If you're involved in a small group, stay faithful to that. Uh, one of the deals that we are missing uh, so much, Carol, myself, because of her cancer, is our small group meeting every month, we, uh, every week. We're missing that so much. Uh, but this past Thursday night, uh, we uh, had the opportunity to FaceTime them, and that was really cool. It was uh, one of the highlights of our day on Thursday, and that was fun. And if you're not involved in a small group, uh, you need to be. And uh, uh, again, uh, in the section of the program that has place for prayer requests, you can uh, put in a prayer request. Uh, if you're not involved in a small group and you'd like to be, just give your name, check off on that, and give those prayer requests or the, uh, 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 I want to sign up for a small group. Just put them over at the information desk after service, and that would be very, very cool. All right? Are you guys ready to study God's Word together today? Are you ready? Good. I'm glad you are, and I'm looking forward to being able to uh, just break it for you uh, uh, t- today. This morning's message, Prayer and Fasting, the Language of the Kingdom of God, is a, is a message that I've been looking forward to uh, presenting to you for, for some weeks now, because as Jesus turns his attention and his heart toward Jerusalem, he realizes that his disciples, if they need to know how to do anything, 
They needed to understand the language of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And that is prayer and fasting. And I understand that that's something that you and I need to understand as well. Because even though all of us pray somewhere along the line, uh, maybe short, maybe long, we can always learn how to pray better. As Evan mentioned this morning, prayer is not just about telling God what we want, but it's about talking to God and listening to what God has to say. We're going to talk about that uh, this morning in Mark chapter 9. Now I want to give you what we're going to talk about. If you're taking notes this morning, you can jot this down, how a lot of people say this was helpful last week. And so this is what I want to talk about in a sentence. i even go ahead and the next slide there, and this is what I want to talk about today. This side of heaven, folks, we can only experience the glory and the power of the kingdom of God consistently if we learn the language of the kingdom of God. This side of heaven, this side of heaven, on this side of heaven, you are only going to experience consistently the glory and the power of the kingdom of God if you understand how to speak the language of the kingdom of God. Now, last week, uh, last Sunday, uh, the message ended uh, as Jesus pointed his disciples to the way of the cross. Chapter 8 of Mark and verse 34 says this, Then Jesus called the crowds uh, uh, to him along with his disciples, and he said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must do three things. They have to deny themselves, they have to take up the cross, and they have to follow me. Now, in verse uh, 1 of chapter 9, uh, Jesus gives a promise to his disciples that was fulfilled for three of them within a week's period of time, and for all of them just uh, moments, hours later. But it is a promise that will be fulfilled for all of us, not just us, but for everyone uh, on the day when Jesus returns. Now, let's read uh, what he says in verse 1. Jesus said to them, verse 1, chapter 9, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste of death before they see the kingdom of God uh, that it has come with its power. Now I want you to understand that not everybody's going to die. Did you realize that? Not everybody's going to die. There will be people alive on the day when Jesus returns. And for those people, his return is going to be dramatic, but even if uh, someone has died, his return is going to be dramatic as well, uh, according to what Scripture says. We'll look at that a little bit more detail in just a few minutes. But I want you to understand that we are all going to see the kingdom of God coming in power and in glory. Whether we've accepted Jesus Christ as Savior of our lives or not, we will all experience the kingdom. For far too many, it will be just a brief experience as they spend the rest of all of eternity in hell separated from God. 150 times, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is described in Scripture in the New Testament. Jesus constantly talks about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Almost every single one of his parables, not every one, but almost every single one of his parables begins with this statement, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is like. Jesus will go on and say the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like a huge net. A kingdom of heaven is like the pearl of great price. The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of God is like. Jesus was all about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Chapter 6 of Matthew, verse 10, Jesus prays and teaches his disciples to pray with these words. He says, your kingdom come. 
Your will be done, what? On earth as it is in heaven. Now in verse 1 it says, Truly I tell you, some of you who are standing here today will not taste of death before they see the kingdom of God come with its power. Now I want to talk to you about two things today. I want to talk about the kingdom of God then I want to talk about the language of the kingdom of God. So if you're taking notes, just go ahead and throw down this next, uh, this next phrase, a major heading. We want to talk about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. Now there are two stories in uh, the section that we're going to study today that really give two aspects of the kingdom of God. The first aspect that we see of the kingdom of God is the glory of the kingdom of God, the glory of the kingdom of God. And that is seen on the mountain. I showed you this slide last Sunday. There's a slide, a picture of Mount Hermon in northern Galilee. And it's on this very mountain that this first story of, of, of our section takes place. And it shows for us the glory of the kingdom of God. And that is shown on the mountain. The glory of the kingdom of God is shown on the mountain. Now, have your Bible. Let's study together. I'm going to ask you to turn to some sections of Scripture. Don't get lost. Let's move through this this morning. In verse 2 and 3, this is what we read. It says, After six days, Jesus took Peter and James and John with him, and he led them up on a high mountain, and there they were all alone. And there he was transfigured. The word is uh, more, uh, uh, a Greek word is mormufo. We get the uh, uh, English word metamorphosis from it. Uh, it is changed. It totally changed from inside out. There he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Now I want to kind of build this idea of the glory of the kingdom of God around three questions this morning. Three questions. Uh, In Luke chapter 9, in verse 28 through 29, in Luke's account of this story, this is the way the story begins. Listen very closely. It's very, very fascinating to me. It says, when Jesus went up onto a mountain to pray. And watch this. It says, as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. Same word. The appearance of his face was transfigured. Metamorphosis took place. And his disciples looked at Jesus and they saw that he was different. Now that certainly speaks of our own spiritual transformation as well. Because I don't know whether you know this or not, that Jesus isn't just about you getting saved. He wants you to get saved. But once you become saved, He is working all the rest of your life to transform you into His image. In other words, when you get to heaven, Jesus did not want to meet old you with all of your sin, your grouchiness, all of the problems that you have. He wants to meet a brand new you. And that will take place when you get to heaven dramatically. But up until that point, He is constantly transforming you into the image of Himself. Now, put your bookmarker here. Go to the right, several books, to the book of 2 Corinthians. The book of 2 Corinthians and chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And I want you to notice uh, what it has to say about this transformation, this spiritual transformation that takes place in the life of every single disciple of Jesus Christ. Now to some people it's more, to other people it's less, but I want you to understand that this occurs in everybody's life. I want to tell you that some people spend all of their days fighting the Holy Spirit on the transformation that He wants to bring about. 
And that's the reason, my friend, your life is so miserable. Can I, can I tell you that right up front? The reason your life is so miserable is because you constantly fight the Spirit on the job that He wants to do in your life. And this is what it says. It says chapter uh, 3 of 2 Corinthians, verse 17. says, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces reflect or contemplate the Lord's glory, watch this, are being transformed, exactly the same word, metamorphosis, into His image, Jesus' image, with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, how does that take place in our lives? Practically, how does God change us in, his li- in our lives? You see, religion is about working real hard to try to bring about the changes in our life that uh, we need want to bring about. In other words, I'm doing something really, really bad, and so I work really, really hard, and uh, I'll finally get to the point that I'm changing those things in my life. That's religion. That's not uh, in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Religion talks about doing a lot of good things so that you can please God on the day when you get uh, to, to the judgment seat. That's religion, but that has nothing to do with a relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, that transformation is not something that we do to ourselves. That transformation is something that God does in us. Now, how does that take place? Let me give you two ways. There's more than two ways, but let me give you the two most prominent ways. Write them down. Number one, it's through the Word of God. Through the Word of God. Now, in the book of Romans, the 12th chapter, verse 1 and 2, uh, go back to your left, if you're in 2 Corinthians, go back to your left, two books, to the book of Romans, chapter 12, and there's a statement here concerning this transformation that takes place and how the Word of God brings it about in our lives. It says in chapter 12 and verse 1, it says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That is your true and proper worship. This is what I want you to see. Do not conform to the pattern of this world any longer, but be, say it out loud, what's the word? Transformed. By the renewing of your mind. That transformation takes place in your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. You might want to jot down in the margin of your Bible, beside verse, uh, verse 2, uh, John, Gospel of John, John chapter 17, verse 17. The longest recorded prayer of Jesus, Jesus prays uh, for His disciples. And in that prayer for His disciples, you and I, chapter 17, 17, He prays his prayer. He says, Lord, sanctify them. The word sanctify is change. Lord, change my disciples. Make them pure and holy by the truth. And then he says, your word, O Lord, is truth. Some of you know that I'm spending 90 days reading through all of the scripture and I'm in the book of Isaiah today. I can't wait to jump in this afternoon to my reading of the book of Isaiah. But I was reading in the, in the Psalms uh, last week and, and uh, I was reading Psalm 119. The longest psalm right in the center of the, uh, of the Bible is about the Bible. Did you know that? Psalm 119, longest psalm uh, is, is about the Bible. And in that psalm, over and over and over and over and over again, It talks about the benefits of studying, reading, meditating on the Word of God. I have been blessed beyond imagination at how the Word of God has spoken into my life. Folks, I want you to understand that the Word of God will change your life. 
Be in it. Find a way to uh, read it. You don't have to read through the Bible in 90 days, but find out a way to read through the Bible every single day of your life. And I want to tell you, that'll bring about change in your life. That's one of the ways that God works to change our lives. Another way uh, that he works to change our lives is problems. Uh, can I get a moan right now? Just, just problems. I don't like this. I, I wish that, uh, you know, that he would uh, find a different way for that. But as I thought about that, that that's the way it worked for me in school. You know, I never learned anything because the teacher said, I want to give you this great principle in math. And all of a sudden, boom, it just dropped in my mind. And I said, well, she's the greatest teacher in the world. No, you know how I learned any lesson in school? It was about hard work. It was about doing the homework. It was about the trials that I had to go through when I didn't get my homework done, and I got a zero for that, and I learned I'm not going to do that again, all right? Problems teach us uh, and transform us into the image of God. How do I know that? Go with me, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and I want you to notice verse 28 and 29. One of my favorite paragraphs in Scripture for the believer. It says in verse 28, he says, We know that all things, uh, in all things God, work, God works for the good of those who love Him and have been called according to His purpose. Everybody says, Hallelujah, that's great. But then he goes on in the next verse to explain how. For those God foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed. That's the word transformed, metamorphosis. Into the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. How's that happen? Through God working in our lives through all sorts of ways. And this is what I've learned. The greatest times of transformation in my life have not come about during good times, but during tough times of my life. I've told you that before. I'll continue telling you that. Nothing changes your life more into the image of Jesus Christ than working through problems and suffering through trials. Don't like it? Wish there was another way? But that works very, very good. Now go back with me to Mark chapter 9, and I want to pick up uh, reading verse 6, 4 through 6. Jesus up on the mountain, verse uh, 4, it says, And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And Jesus said, uh, and Peter said, Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. Uh, they were so frightened. Peter was the kind of guy, he didn't know what to say, so he just had to say something. Uh, yeah. Have you ever met a person like that? Are you like that? I find myself too often times, rather than let my mind think a little bit, I just engage my mouth before I've really thought through what I ought to say. Uh, I just envy people that can stop and sit for a moment, uh, you know, come up with good thoughts, and, and then be able to present them uh, well. If you're one of those people, great. I'm more like Peter. I just shoot too fast. And then I thought, they, why did I say that? Can anybody say amen on that? Anybody like that in your life, all right? Some are, some aren't, uh, but that was this. Now, the question is, why Elijah? Why Moses? I want you to understand that they represented, uh, according to most Bible scholars, the redeemed Christians who will see the glory of the kingdom of God on the day when Jesus returns. Let me explain that to you. Moses was the only person in the Bible that it says was buried by God himself. Deuteronomy 34, verse 6, you can write down, read it. The Bible says that God took Moses up on the mountain before the Israelites would go into the promised land, and God, and he died there, and God himself buried Moses. Why Elijah? 
Elijah is one of the two people that went to heaven without dying. He went to heaven in a whirlwind. 2 Kings chapter 2. Now what I want you to understand, when Jesus returns, those two types of redeemed people will see Jesus, whether they're dead or whether they're alive, the moment that Jesus comes back from heaven. Now I've got to give you this section of scripture. If you get nothing else today, I want to remind you of the day when Jesus comes back. You see, we get so involved with day after day after day. There's going to be a day like no other day. And it's going to make any day you've ever lived man, seem trite compared to that eternal day. Keep your bookmarker here. Go to the right to the book, first, uh, book of 1 Thessalonians. Find the book of 1 Thessalonians in chapter 4. I read this at every uh, funeral for Christians at the cemetery. Every single one. I do not read this section of scripture for people that do not know the Lord because this promise isn't true for them. Jesus is going to come back, but uh, uh, this promise isn't true for them. It's true only for Christians, those who have accepted Jesus as Savior and Lord of their life. Read with me if you would. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. It says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be informed about those who sleep in the Lord, those who have died in the Lord, so that you do not, uh, do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep with him. I don't have time to get into explaining uh, the theology behind this section of Scripture. Just listen to it. Verse 15. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with a voice of the archangel, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we are still alive, and our left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. First question I want you to ask, uh, uh, ask yourself in this section of Scripture, verse 2 and 3, is are you being transformed today into the likeness of Jesus? But in this section of Scripture, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I want you to ask yourself this question. Are you redeemed today by the blood of Jesus? You see, if there hasn't been a time when the blood of Jesus Christ through faith has been applied to your life, then you're not redeemed. And on the day when Jesus returns, it will not be a day of celebration for you. The Bible says, we'll notice it in a moment, it will be the day of the greatest horror of your life ever. As you realize yourself, oh my goodness, the word of God's true. And Jesus is indeed king. And I blew him off. And I'm going to suffer for that throughout all of eternity. So the question for you is, are you redeemed today by the blood of Jesus Christ? If you're not, I want to meet you over at the cross at the end of service this morning to talk to you about how you can become a Christian. Third question is wrapped up back in chapter 9 of Mark. Go back there, Mark chapter 9. And I want you to look at verse 7 through 8. Because there's one last question I want to ask you, and I'll get to, you, I'll get to it here in just a second. It says suddenly, verse 8, suddenly, uh, verse 7, it said, Then a cloud appeared, 
and covered them and a voice came from the cloud and the voice said, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. A cloud appeared. Over a hundred times in the New Testament the Old Testament, the cloud represents the glory of God coming. In the Old Testament, during the wilderness wanderings, you might remember in Exodus chapter 13, 14, it was a cloud that led the Israelites by day all through the wilderness. Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 19 to 24, it says that this immense cloud came and settled over Mount Sinai and Moses and Aaron went up into the cloud and they received the Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter, uh, in in the book of Exodus, uh, uh, Numbers, uh, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the first song we sang this morning refers to the glory of God falling on the tabernacle and falling uh, uh, on the temple of God. And uh, the Bible says it it was a powerful movement. In the book of Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 4, when Ezekiel is being called into the ministry, he sees the throne room of God and he says, there was an immense cloud coming toward me out of the north. And there was violent lightning and light shined around the cloud. That's the Old Testament. In the New Testament chapter 1 of Acts and verse 7, says as Jesus was ascending back into heaven, a what? cloud hid him from their sight. In the book of Revelation chapter 14 verse 14 says the son of man is seated on a white cloud with a crown of gold on his head and a sickle in his hand ready, ready and waiting to harvest the earth. And all he's waiting on is the movement of God to say now's the day, now's the time. One last passage of Scripture that I want you to turn to, and we're going to come back here just immediately, but I cannot allow you to miss this. Go to the left, the book of Matthew, chapter uh, 24. I've talked several times about what Christians will uh, see and think when Jesus returns. But this section of Scripture, and I could give you dozens of them, Jesus talks more about this than he talks about heaven. He talks more about hell than he talks about heaven. And his return is a warning constantly in Jesus, on Jesus' lips, and this is one of them. Jesus is speaking in Matthew 24, verse 30 and 31. And he says, then on that day, the day when Jesus said, when God says, Jesus, now's the day to return. It says the the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the people, watch this, all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming. Now I know today that the screwed up theology of almost every single Christian and almost every single person alive is that everybody's going to go to heaven. God wouldn't send anybody to hell, and He doesn't. People choose to go to hell. But I know that the idea is that everybody's going to go to heaven somehow, some way. God is gracious, and everybody's going to get there. It's going to be a day of celebration. That's not what Jesus says. He says, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And Then he'll send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four, corner, uh, uh, from the four winds from one end of the, uh, of the heavens to the other. And the question I have to close out this section with is, are you ready today? 
Jesus were to return today, today, are you ready for his return? If you're not, if you're not sure, I'd love to sit and talk with you after the service today. I'll be over by the cross. Well, that's the glory of the kingdom. It takes place on the mountain. But I want you to turn to the power of the kingdom that we see in verse 9 through 27 that occurs uh, in the valley. Next slide there, Eva. Uh, and uh, isn't it interesting that anytime you're on a mountaintop, you love being on a mountaintop with Jesus. Don't you retreat? Everything's wonderful. But what do you notice every time you've been on a mountaintop with, with Jesus? You've got to return to the valley, all right? It, it always works that way. And I'll give you two sections of Scripture here. Uh, there, there are two reasons for that. In verse 9 through 13, I don't, I don't want to take time to read it, uh, but in verse 9 through 13, in the valley, there are always new and old questions you've got to struggle with. And, and you'll read about some questions that the disciples pose to Jesus. There are always questions uh, to, be, uh, to face when you come back down uh, from the mountain. But secondly, in the valley... There are always new and old problems to solve. Anybody ever been on a mountaintop before? And you wish you would last there forever, but you come down from the mountain, and all of a sudden, what do you meet? Problems, troubles. You see, the people that are in the valley hadn't been with you on the mountain. And even if they had, they would still face problems in their lives. And we notice one in this section of Scripture. Let's just read it quickly, verse 14 to 20. In verse 14 it says, when they, when they came uh, to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers uh, of the law arguing with them. And as Jesus, uh, as soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and they ran to him. What are you arguing about, they asked. And a, a man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed with a spirit who has robbed him of speech. And whenever it seizes him, throws him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and he gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. Kind of sounds like hell, doesn't it? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why? Because that's where Satan's going to be. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long will I stay with you? How long will I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him, and when the Spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion, and he fell to the ground and rolled around foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been this way? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or the water to kill him. But if you can do anything... Take pity on us. I love this next section of Scripture because it shows the compassion of Jesus so clearly. If you can, Jesus asks, everything is possible for the one who believes. Verse 24. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me in my unbelief. You ever been there before in your life? Lord, I believe in you, but I'm just struggling with believing in you right now. I'll be honest with you, that's me all the time. I believe in who God is and what he can do, but I struggle oftentimes with unbelief. Verse 26, 5. When Jesus saw that the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf, mute spirit, he said, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. And the spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. And the boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up to his feet, and he stood. Let me have three minutes to talk about the language of the kingdom of God. It's described for us in verse 28 and 29, the language of the kingdom of God. It says, after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, 
Why couldn't we drive the demon out? And Jesus replied, This kind can only come out by prayer and by fasting. Now, do you remember how the story began? Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Jesus goes up onto a mountain to pray, and as he is praying, his face is transformed. His disciples are down in the valley. They couldn't perform a miracle of driving out the demon, and they ask why, and Jesus says, this can only occur by prayer and fasting. Fifteen times in the gospel, Jesus leaves the crowd to pray and to fast. The question is, why did Jesus spend so much time in prayer and fasting? One writer writes and said, Jesus prayed and fasted habitually because he knew that there were some supernatural things that could only be released through prayer and fasting. Luke chapter 6 verse 40 says, No disciples above his teacher, but everyone who has been fully trained will be like his teacher. I was talking to a new brother. I just met him the other day at Starbucks. I was writing my sermon Friday morning, and I met him. He saw the title of the book, Fasting. I'll give it to you here in just a second on my, on my table. And he said, that's a good book. I hadn't read it yet. I'm scared to death of it. And my wife says I need to read it. I'm overweight. I need to lose some weight, but I need to get to know Jesus better. I need to learn, I need to learn how to fast. And we were talking about that process. He said, you know, he said Jesus regularly got away to pray, didn't he? I said, yeah, he did. Seemed like Jesus oftentimes got away from the crowds and his busyness to be able just to pray and fast and be alone with God, didn't he? I said, yeah, he did. He said, you know the reason why I don't do that, and this is why you don't either? He said, because in my pride, I think I can handle all the problems I got in my life, right? And it seems like to me that if I'm in a real mess, the best thing for me to do is just work harder, run faster to try to get beyond the mess. And we ended our conversation with his question. He said, when will I ever learn to be like Jesus and just get away and pray and fast? What was he saying? He was saying, I need to learn to speak the language of the kingdom. This kind, this spirit, this miracle only takes place with prayer and fasting. You remember what I started out with this morning? I said, there, this side of heaven, there, the, the, we will not regularly experience the glory and the power of God without learning the language of the kingdom. And that's prayer and fasting. The Bible says in Luke chapter 11, verse 2, one, and one day while Jesus was praying, his disciples says, Lord, teach us to pray. Folks, learning... The language of prayer and fasting just like learning a foreign language. How many people have ever learned a foreign language in school? Language not native to yourself, all right? How many people ever discovered that speak, unless you learned it when you were about two or three years old, how many people have ever experienced the fact that trying to speak a foreign language is just difficult? It just, I mean, they sound so cool, but you just sound so stupid when you're saying the same words. You know why? Because when you're very, very young, the muscles of your mouth are shaped to be able to speak your native language. And trying to learn to speak another language later on in life means trying to reshape the muscles of your mouth. You know why it's so hard for you to pray? Because it's not your native language. And it takes time to make that happen. Jesus, uh, no disciples above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained, will be like 
this teacher. I believe one of my jobs is to help you learn how to pray and fast. And so let me give you a couple, a couple tips, and then you're going to be done. Number one, uh, tip number one, you've got to get in the water. I remember when I was learning how to swim, uh, I went to the YMCA long before the song was out. I, you know, I was doing the YMCA thing. I was a little bit scudder. And uh, you know how I learned how to swim? It was not about taking lessons about these are the proper strokes or any of that sort of thing. The guy literally took me to the side of the pool, threw me in the water, and I learned how to swim. I, I, I figured, you know, later on, if I had not learned how to swim real, real soon, he would have probably jumped in and helped me out. Or he would have said, you're only in two feet of water. Just put your feet on the bottom, you know. Uh, but but it, I, I would have never learned how to swim if I didn't get in the water. Same thing with prayer. You're not going to learn how to do it unless you get into it. I would encourage some of you here today who are good prayers to become involved with our Sunday morning prayer team. Uh, this is Kathy Farrell, who's leading up that team, her number, and uh, we need some other people that would be willing to say, hey, I, I will show up early before church on Sunday morning, first service, second service, uh, and I'm going to go in a prayer room, and I'm just going to uh, pray and ask God's presence to be in our service today. Bless Neil as he preaches. Uh, help the worship team as they lead. And write down that number for some of you, and just call her and say, hey, I'd like to uh, set up a time to be able to do that, and she'll put you on a rotating basis. So, tip number two, I think you need to learn from uh, people who know how to fast and pray. I'll give you this resource uh, by Franklin, Jensenton uh, Franklin. Uh, just, it's the best book on fasting I know. It's simply called Fasting. Uh, all right, fasting. He's a Pentecostal guy. Uh, you'll say, I don't believe in uh, all, I agree with all of his theology. That's okay. But I want you to understand that fasting, that's a great, great resource. I, I give you that because during January, we're going to start out a year this way. This year, we haven't done it before. We're going to start out a year uh, with a Daniel fast. Uh, uh, Daniel in chapter 10 of Daniel verse 2 through 3 uh, said that he uh, uh, didn't have any sweets or meat or wine uh, during 20, 21 days. You realize that in your lifetime you're going to eat over 11,000 pounds of sugar? <laughs> 11,000 pounds of sugar. And uh, uh, we're going to help you with that. It's not about losing weight, but really the issue is it's about how much you need Jesus. You need Jesus. Our village needs Jesus. Our world needs Jesus. And I still believe that 2 Chronicles 7.14 is real and true. That if people will humble themselves and pray, God will heal, hear, hear from heaven and heal their land. Well, communion time, uh, band come, and, and uh, let's uh, gather around the Lord's table this morning. Communion really is a time to be able to remember what Jesus has done for us uh, on the cross it's about time to develop uh, more deeply that personal relationship with Jesus. And by the way, that's what prayer is all about. It's about developing a relationship with, uh, with Jesus as we talk to him and hear his voice back to us. And so let's pause just for a few moments. Receive the Lord's Supper today. Listen to his voice uh, as he feeds you spiritually with bread and juice that represents Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection uh, on the cross. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for these, uh, this time to be able to study your word. And Father, I just pray that you help us to learn better the language of the kingdom. Father, I so much want to be able to see your glory. Father, I so much want to see your power, and I want to see it before I get to heaven. And I want to see it consistently and regularly in my life. And Father, I uh, know that there are people sitting right here that have that same, same desire. And so, Father, as we just silently said and received the Lord's Supper, Hear our hearts call out to you. Speak to us through your word. Help us to see your glory. Help us to see your power. Even through this simple meal 
of bread and juice. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.